Well, welcome to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, I put out a little feeler to see if there was any particular topic, and we may even have callers later on in the show uh, for the second half. And uh, let people ask questions, because I know there's a lot of questions out there. We did a survey of... uh, of some of the broadcasts that we do, and we actually have quite a few listeners that show up from time to time compared to the other people that are at least on those different networks. And because uh, they see the, they see people coming on when we come on, and they see them leaving when we leave. <laughs> so <laughs> it makes us uh, that somebody likes what we say. Although I've been. Uh, dabbling in a little bit of uh, Facebook evangelizing, and there has been uh, mixed uh, reception of some of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, I went on several groups that would call themselves anarchist groups. There were anarchist capitalists, and uh, I, I didn't go on it, but I guess there's what they call ANCAP. These are anarchists who are communists or socialists which uh, seems to be kind of an impossibility, but somehow or other people, you know, they alter the definition of words and they're able to mix ideas and think that uh, the only way that anarchism works is that if you have a communist society, or at least a socialist society, a collective society. But uh, those are absolutely different ideas that cannot, cohabitate in the same scheme uh, at least as as you talk about a governance of society you know uh, anarchism is without rulers it doesn't mean without government it means without rulers when we say government people think well you're talking about people ruling over other people no in an anarchist society the people would have to govern themselves And if they applied the golden rule, I just put up a page this morning, golden rule at preparing you. It needs more work, so I haven't announced it yet. But uh, the golden rule is that you care about others as much as you care about yourself. You do on to others as you would have others do on to you. If you want to be free, if you want to exercise your rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you would want the protection of other people to keep, you know, thieves and robbers from stealing from you. Well, that means that you have to protect other people yourself from thieves and robbers. And, of course, there's accidents. There's things that, uh, you know, lightning strikes here and there, storms come in and damage your right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, acts of nature. And you would want people to help you out. If you were drowning, you'd want somebody to throw you a life rope, you know, or a life preserver to help you save yourself from drowning. If a crocodile was dragging you out, you'd want somebody to drag you back uh, to shore and and to stop the crocodile. It doesn't have to be thieves and robbers. It can just be natural events. Well, that means you have to do the same for others if you're going to apply the golden rule. You have to 
come to the aid of others, no matter what it is, natural disaster or thieves and robbers, and help protect them. Or, or maybe somebody is cheating them. You know, they said that, oh, yeah, I'll give you my cow if you do this work for me. And you do the work, and then they bring this other half-dead cow out that you didn't know about, and they want to give you that cow. And you said your cow, and you pointed out there in the field, and that wasn't the cow that was in the field. So, I mean, whatever the 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 deception, the bait-and-switch, or whatever it is, the fraud that is being perpetrated on you, you would want your neighbors to come to your defense. And so, therefore, you would want to come to the defense of others. Well, what people do is they elect rulers who do that job for them because they don't have the time to come down, you know, and stand with their neighbor when injustice is happening. And so they elect somebody else and they agree to pay him to go and do this. He becomes a mercenary almost immediately. It's not done out of love. It's done because it's his job. And we do that with police forces and fire departments. And sometimes they do a pretty good job, and sometimes they don't. And we whine and cry when they don't. But the golden rule is that you care about others as much as you care about yourself. And it is usually an error on the part of society to relegate or delegate authority to one class of citizen you know where one citizen takes on the rights and responsibilities of another citizen or another group of citizens and they now are going to act on their behalf because what happens and samuel explains this in great detail in first samuel 8 that this individual no matter how noble he is is almost always corrupted by this addition of additional power, this adding of power to him, where he has more power than the average citizen because the average citizen has said, I'm delegating you to exercise power on my behalf. And he becomes a ruler. He's been given some sort of power as an individual, to make choices for you in the exercise of the natural responsibility you have based on the golden rule to care about others as much as you care about yourself. You're you're going to say, you deal with the injustices, you deal with the usurpations, and I will go watch the football game or whatever it is you want to watch or do. And that's bad because that individual will have more power than is naturally available to individuals because he has not only his own power, but he now has some of your power, what they used to call in Rome, potestas. And you have now formed a city-state. He is now the representative of the state. I'm here from the state, and I'm here to help. He gets to come and say that. And he can say that because you gave him your power. Now a lot of people are going around, I never gave him any power. Show me the wet ink contract, you know, where I signed over this power. Well, that's that's a bold statement, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's never worked that way. Somebody reads a little bit about common law contracts or something like that, and 
you know, that a contract has to have consent and mutual understanding and, you know, an agreement of the parties. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's certain kinds of contracts have to have that. But most of the contracts that take place throughout the universe take place by word or deed. It doesn't have to be a written piece of paper. It has to do with your actions. And, and another thing, they said, well, when did I give consent? Well, there's, there's there's dozens of maxims of law that have been accepted for hundreds, even thousands of years about assent by consent, and it, it, it even doing nothing, doing absolutely nothing, signing nothing, doing nothing, you assent. And there are maxims that explain how this is. I mean, if if you, you know, it's the Good Samaritan law. If somebody somebody's you know dying, and you could reasonably offer an assistance to that individual with virtually no risk to yourself, just an inconvenience of where you have to stop, you know, and uh, you know break the glass and call the fire department, and you don't do it. You you know, you're considered, you know, like if, if you see a robbery and you could call on your cell phone. You you hear a rape taking place and you could call on your cell phone. From, from a safe distance where you're not in jeopardy or anything, you got the cell phone in your pocket and all you have to do is dial 911 and report it. And maybe get somebody there to save this individual. And you don't do it. You become complicit in the criminal activity of the individuals committing the crime. You you have aided and embedded by doing nothing. That's a common principle. You didn't sign anything, but you have participated in a crime because you did not aid the uh, the person being assaulted or attacked. And so the idea that you have to have a wet ink contract is ridiculous. Besides, there are wet ink contracts by the tens of thousands. And here's another trip up that a lot of these people have is that I said, your parents signed the contract when they signed for you, when they, when they uh, signed for, uh, to enter into a hospital. They gave the authority to the hospital to uh, uh, begin the process of making the state your father. And uh, they do it by uh, applying for a birth certificate. And applying to aid from the hospital allows the hospital to take on that responsibility. When you sign in at the hospital, they, they, uh, they begin to act on your behalf. And you say, well, I was unconscious when I went into the hospital. I didn't sign anything. Okay, well... When you came conscious and you realized where you were, did you take action to take back your responsibilities and to inform them that you no longer want to be there or that you know you're not consenting to their assistance uh, etc did you did you alter your relationship with them so that they could not assume that they just had powers for you, medical powers and stuff? I mean, often hospitals are, you know, looking for the closest relative, looking for somebody who can sign off 
off on certain acts because they have a limited amount of power, but they do have some power. But when you go in and register in that hospital, that hospital gets to, you know, like if you go in there to give birth, they get to apply for you. You don't even have to sign the birth certificate. But the birth certificate itself, again, is not a contract. Absolutely. Uh, there is a contractual nature to it, but it's not a contract between the baby and the and the state. It's not a contract between the parents and the and, and the state, really. But it's a notification, opening up a process for benefits, and those benefits may come to the child. You've registered that child, so now it becomes eligible for benefits, which is why. Everybody wants this, you know, you want to go down and get a driver's license now. They want to see a birth certificate. They want to see a Social Security number. They want to know if you're a member. They want to know if you're an active member of a particular social group. And uh, so that you could obtain the benefit because they consider all these things benefits. And and they are benefits. But it, when does it begin? It began way back with your parents. Your parents applied for benefits from the government. You know, Social Security is a benefit. Welfare is a benefit. Public education is a benefit. Somebody's paying. Those aren't free things. Somebody's paying for them. Well, who's paying for them? Your neighbors. You and your neighbors. You know, I mean, you. If, once you sign up for Social Security, you'll be get hit by a bus the next day. And they'll put you on disability. Forever. You didn't pay in. You didn't pay in enough. You you may not even get the first payment in. You just signed up. Boom. Now you're covered. It's not insurance. It's a collective. Everybody else will have to pay in for you forever. Now, you didn't get hit by a bus, so you paid in for years. Okay, lucky you. The money isn't there anymore. It's gone. It's all gone. It's operating in the red. Some people will tell you that, oh, there's enough coming in. No. Supreme Court's ruled over and over again. There is no division of funds. There's only one fund. So if the government's operating in the red, the whole system is in the red. You keep paying into it, but it isn't there anymore. That money's just going out to pay interest on it now. So it's totally bankrupt system. You're a member, and you have no right to benefits whatsoever. And if they decide you have no rights to benefits, you lose them all. They can do that. They can they can take away all the benefits, and you still have to pay in because it's now a system in debt, and you're a surety for that debt. That's the way it works. And it started with things like a birth certificate, but your parents had a birth certificate before you. Now, your parents could be old enough now if they're over 100 years old they could be old enough that they predated the federal birth registration area. But uh, they would have to be, you know, like 105 years old or something. Uh, because there were birth certificates around, you know, more than 100 years ago, but they weren't a part of the federal birth registration area. Once they created that, then that gives you permission to have this birth. So it's all well organized. And you say, well, my parents can't sign a contract for me, which is absolutely ridiculous. Of course they can. Um, children were signed up for apprenticeships. They were all these things. Now, eventually, when you reach a certain age, you can reject that. 
but not if you owe money. <laughs> not if you've taken benefits. Now you have to pay it back. It's like the one-child contract in China. They actually went to the trouble. Totalitarian dictatorship like China, they had a one-child contract. You sign up for the contract, you get all kinds of extra benefits. But then if you get pregnant again, they come and they say, well, you're going to have to have an abortion. Because you signed a contract, you would only have one child. Or you can pay back all those benefits. Well, most people can't because they're living in poverty. There are people in China that have dozens of kids. They never signed the one-child contract. And they have businesses, and you know they've had it all during the communist period, but they were... They just kind of allow that. Uh, they pay all kinds of taxes, but they're very successful, hardworking, have all kinds of employees, and they have numerous children. But they don't take any benefits. Uh, generally speaking, they don't take any benefits. They do take some benefits, and there's there's problems even with that. But uh, but that's the way it works. If you take the benefit, you suffer the advantage or disadvantage. Now, let's give you an example of bondage, where you are in bondage because of what your parents did. Do you think that's possible? Now, these guys, they all want to say, oh, no, I, you know, my parents can't sign a contract for me. But, I mean, just open up the Bible, which is a semi-history book. It talks about the bondage in Israel, of Israel in Egypt. And that bondage was due to a contract. And they talk about it. Uh, the Israelites, there was a famine, and they needed to go somewhere. A lot of people needed to go somewhere to Egypt to get food. And they went and they bought grain. And when their gold ran out, they came and they traded their animals. And when their animals ran out, they traded themselves. They said, we will work for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh feeds us. You know, gives us food stamps. We will work for Pharaoh. That's the deal. If you go and you read all the laws, which there are many, <laughs> you will see that that's the deal. If you're signed up, registered, uh Attain a number from the federal government identifying your employee identification number, which is what a Social Security number is. You can get others, but an employee identification number. You can go to work for somebody with a federal employee employer identification number, and you will have to give a portion of your labor, whatever you earn, to the government. And your parents signed up for that. And probably your grandparents signed up for that. This generation to generation. So you can't inherit any more than what your parents have. And your parents don't have a right to all of their labor. A portion of their labor belongs to the state, which is a collective created by contract. It does exist. The state is not a fiction in the sense of a made-up story. <laughs> A fiction of law, we have articles that explain a fiction of law. Uh, it's a real thing. It's a real contract. There are real people there with real rights. They say, well, it's not uh, the living, breathing man. No, it's a bunch of living, breathing men. <laughs> people have breathed life into the state. 
the ancient Jewish folklore, the state is a golem, a corporation uh, made out of clay. Why was it made out of clay? Because contracts were made on clay. That's why we talk about breaking contracts. When you break the clay tablet, the contract was written on. All these principles go back to ancient Babylon. They create an entity by agreement. Men agree and breathe life into these entities. Some of their life, their protestos, their power, is put into those entities. And now because it's a collective, the entity has a mind of its own. It isn't necessarily going to agree with you all the time. There are other people involved. It has... It has parameters that it's supposed to function in. And that's what the state is. Now, an anarchist wants no rulers, but an anarchist cannot be a ruler either. Any anarchist, you know, anarchist, uh, it has to do with no archist. The Greek word archist is ruler, no ruler. So if you had a group of people together, say you had 100 people together, and they all said that they were anarchists, no rulers amongst them, they could be very well organized. They could be very orderly. They don't have to be chaotic. That doesn't, that's not what it means. It means no one is ruling one over the other. The uh, King Arthur in his round table of noblemen, that was an anarchy. That's why the table was round. Nobody sat at the head of the table. Every every quest a man took on, every battle a man was willing to fight, he chose to fight it because it was an anarchy. It wasn't men ruling over men saying, you have to go fight this, you have to go fight that. They chose to. But what one does an anarchy this group of anarchists stop becoming anarchists when they start talking about usurping or seizing the rights of others. Injury, taking that down the guy. Oh, okay. together uh, and there's no ruler so they're not really contracted together they have no contract they're just gathering together when do they stop be, being an anarchist group uh, when when does their group abandon the principles of anarchy no rulers it's when they decide to rule over others or even rule over each other. Uh, if they're out tipping over buses and breaking windows, they aren't anarchists because they're ruling over somebody else. Somebody has a bus. Somebody owns a bus. I mean, unless that's their bus they're tipping over, <laughs> which is unlikely, they're not anarchists anymore. 
they they are ruling over others, and so therefore they are archists. They are not anarchists. They are ruling over others. We still call them anarchists, and, and the news media, the misuse of words does not change the meaning of words, except, you know, in, in a way it does, and we do it all the time. But uh, that alteration of the meaning of the word is a lie. You, you See, we all need to be a little bit of a reactionary. What's a reactionary? A reactionary is somebody who is reacting to the status quo. They're going back. The, they're uh, opposing the status quo. They're rolling things back. They're reactionary, going back. Well, a reactionary, you know, going back to what? How far back are you going? Going, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, what something meant originally. And anarchy, anarchist means no rulers. If you take it all the way back to no rulers and you see somebody tipping over buses and, you know, smashing police cars, those aren't anarchists. Those are archists. Those are guys ruling over others. They are the ruler now. You know, and they, they actually get a big charge out of, you know, chasing the cops off the street or whatever. And and people talk about them. And they'll carry an anarchist flag. I was just shocked when I found out anarchists have a flag. How did they come to agree on that? Uh, the fact is, is their misuse of the word will change the meaning of the word in the minds of people. And this is one of the big deals, is that when, you, when you're talking to people and you use words like church, religion, uh, democracy, uh, anarchy, what they think is what they're hearing. They may not know the meaning of words, you know, like religion. They think religion is what they think about God. And you can actually find dictionaries that define the word religion, what you think about God. But that's not, not what the word originally meant. Religiere, it's not what it meant. Superstitio was what you think about God. Religion was how you took care of the needy in your society. And how you took care of the needy in your society was just the implementation of the golden rule. You love your neighbor as yourself. You care about your neighbor, his rights, his property, his pursuit of happiness, as much as you care about your own. What you would want others to do for you, you do for others. So that is this application of the golden rule in society is this loving your neighbor as yourself that we see both Abraham and Jesus and all the apostles talking about incessantly. Because that's an essential ingredient to a successful anarchism. You know, a group of anarchists functioning as a self-governing unit. The first time that any one of them wants to rule over others, they're not anarchists anymore. Now, now this, just an experience, there's all these different groups out here who call themselves anarchists. 
and uh, you know there's Christian anarchists and uh, uh, and what they call ANCAPs, uh, anarchist uh, uh, capitalist groups, anarchist uh, capitalist communities, and they have all these different names. And I mean, there's thousands of people on these different groups, and on Facebook anyway. And uh, they have uh, different personalities kind of manifesting themselves on the different groups. And uh, I had a conversation with one group, and, and I couldn't believe what I was reading, but there it was, there in black and white. But it inter- ended up being kind of a misunderstanding, and that gave me more insight into how the group works. But that one of the head of the group said, the NCAP, meaning anarcho-capitalist position, is centralized ownership. Well, of course, capitalism is always about private ownership of the means of production. And so I thought, this is just absolutely crazy, except for the fact that I knew there was such a thing as NCOMs, anarchist communist groups, anarchist uh, community groups where they're like... Uh, uh, socialist groups, and there are people who've written, you know, huge dialogues on the fact that uh, anarchism only works in a socialist setting. That you know they want to outlaw money <laughs> they, because and and no wages. All workers are given, you know, like a base pay. Uh, because they don't like the employer-employee relationship. Well, all that's not anarchism. That's just void of anarchism. Because in order to accomplish that, you have to rule. You say, you can't decide. If you have a a bunch of uh, uh, tools and equipment and other guys who have no tools and equipment, uh, you know, and you're, you're working, say you're a plumber, and you have all those tools and equipment, and you're going out doing plumbing every day, and you've got so many people asking you to do work that you can't keep up with all of it. I mean, you're just running yourself ragged. So you're going to hire another guy who doesn't know anything about plumbing, has no tools, but he wants to learn the business. He wants to learn how to be a plumber. He said, oh, I'll teach you how to be a plumber. You come and you work for me. I'll give you so much an hour for the work you do. I'll supply you with the tools. You'll ride along with me in the truck at first. Eventually, I'll give you a truck, and you go out and do some of these jobs that I just can't get to. But you're a worker for me. They, everybody bills you know, and pays the, the head plumber, and then he pays this guy a share. Because the guy they says, well, why didn't he just get to charge? Well, he doesn't own the truck. He doesn't own the tools. He doesn't have the knowledge. If he runs into a problem, he has to go back and ask this other guy who's going to take his time out to teach him. But the incomes, they don't want that. They don't want an employer-employee relationship. It's just naive. It's childlike uh, approach to things because it doesn't make any sense. They're just reacting against their own bias and hate of the major corporations. But if the principle works for a guy who hires one helpful employee, I knew a, a plumber who had ten employees, ten other people doing plumbing work. He had uh, 
I think he had like six or seven trucks. And he'd send out two guys in a truck. And uh, they would do jobs for him. And he would, uh, he says it got to a point though, he says that the guys were taking home more money than I was. I was running myself ragged because it became, he, uh, not only was he doing plumbing, but he was helping organize all these plumbing jobs, making sure all the tools were in the truck, making sure that, you know, everybody had uh, what they needed to get the jobs done and assigning them different jobs and moving them around for emergencies. And he says, and the final, you know, with all the cost and overhead of keeping the employees, when he started adding it up, he says, I'm taking home less money than I was when I was just a plumber. And so you know what he did? Well, for one thing, he took a three-month break. <laughs> he went down to Mexico for three months and just lived down in Mexico, closed up the whole shop, just shut everything down. He was having a nervous breakdown. His family life had gone into the toilet, and he just left. And uh, then he came back, and he hung his shingle out again. I mean, the phone had been ringing off the wall anyway, and his answering machine was just full and all this stuff, and he just started over again. Lost a lot of business, of course, but uh, he still, you know, that's the thing about plumbing. They may not call you for years, so he could have gone for years, and they'd still be calling him when he got back. He didn't hire anybody. He took all those trucks, and he parked them in a lot that he rented next to his shop, and uh, he he just worked out of those trucks. He licensed one or two at a time. You know, if one broke down, he just parked it and went and got another one. <laughs> he would hire no employees whatsoever. And uh, he says, I was making way more money working less hours because I was I was just doing what I could do. And if I couldn't do it, I just, I just didn't do it. I learned to take time off. And that's the way he worked. Anarcho-capital, you can't do... What's happened in our society has moved towards socialism. America has been a socialist state for years and years and years. I mean, Social Security is socialism, public education is socialism. All these things are socialism. And we've moved towards that. Corporations, uh, all that stuff is moving in that direction, moving away from capitalism. Uh, and the end result is, is that you... The person with a small business is going to hire two, three, four, five, ten employees, which is where most people work. They don't work for major corporations. There are people who do, but most employees or most of the new jobs, let's put it that way, are small businesses operating. But it's become almost impossible to successfully do that because of the red tape and the bureaucracy that you have to deal with. And so... There's a lot of a lot of jobs that are not being created because of this communist socialist view, where everybody is supposed to be covered, protected, guaranteed, rather than what you earn, you keep. What you don't earn, <laughs> you don't get to have. And so anyway, this NCAP group, this anarcho-capitalist group, the leader of it, said the NCAP position is centralized ownership. It ends up that this was his idea of humor. And uh, and what I found in, in some of these groups, sarcasm is king. 
<laughs> and the use of sarcasm uh, is uh, creates a chasm <laughs> between people. It's uh, it's detrimental to the well-being of individuals and open thinking. It's uh, it's a way of belittling one another, putting people down. Uh, and you know, I actually created a page on sarcasm. There's a lot of little quotes about it. But this is what they do: is they they uh, they pick on anybody with a different idea, and they're very negative on this one group. And they put people down all the time. Uh, and people, you know, people are actually frustrated. There's a lot of other groups you used to have, the members of, used to be on this one big, giant, six, seven thousand man group. And because there's so many people there, they get more and more. But it turns into a group of trolls who are just constantly belittling anybody with a different idea. And there's a, there's a kind of a click that gets there. They can control everything, and somebody complained about the fact that how everybody just jumps on and attacks and belittles and just throws out one sarcastic comment after another about anybody with a different idea, and uh, and ad hominems are regular. Uh, they're almost an oration on that group, and uh, they. They don't realize it, that they're ruling over other people. They just, because there's so many, they just know somebody with these sarcastic comments. And there's no meaningful conversation whatsoever. Um, very little. Uh, there's, I can't refer to it as a conversation because everybody, they, somebody will post something. And then everybody will be, make their comment on that one post. But they're not reading anybody else. There's no conversation. They're just putting in their two cents worth as if anybody's listening and anybody cares. And this is what the troll mentality. They think that, you know, their their sarcasm, their, their belittling of others is actually somehow that people are listening. You know, they think 6,000 people are going to read their two cents. But none of it's constructive. I, I shouldn't say none. I've actually seen whole threads that went on and on and on. Nothing constructive said in the entire thread. All just sarcasm and belittling and putting people down and, you know, kind of sticking their tongue out at everybody. Uh, literally, actually, they even do that. Um, and it's a waste of time. But somehow that's enough social contact to make them happy. <laughs> Now, there are other groups that actually talk about some of these things, and they actually are reasonable. And you can bring in new ideas, and at least new to them. They're not new ideas. I mean, like Polybius. Now, that you can't refer to Polybius's ideas as a new idea, because Polybius was around 200 years before Jesus Christ. He was considered the historian of historians. And he said, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule, arco, of force and violence. That's where the that word rule there is from, some form of arco, meaning ruler, of force and violence. The people, having grown accustomed to feed 
at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre and banish and plunder until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. And that's 200 years before Christ. He's telling people that the welfare state reduces people to savages, making them fit for nothing but to be ruled over by arco, masters, and monarchs. That's where socialism takes you. Because socialism is feeding at the expense of others. The mere idea of anarcho-com is an oxymoron with an emphasis on moron. It is insane. And of course, when I saw this supposed anarcho-capitalist referring to collective ownership, I thought, like, is he really an anarchist communist? Well, evidently, he, he says he's not. He said that was just a joke. And there's a lot of those jokes on his group, uh, which makes his his group kind of a joke. (laughs) Because everybody's making fun of everybody else. And yet, you know, there's a few posts that go up from time to time that bring up some interesting questions. But, uh, But they actually do talk, not as a joke, but specifically saying the phrase, seizing the means of production. Now, you know, I asked him, so is seizing the means of production an anarchist idea or an archist idea? And uh, and his answer was, they can be both. Well, it's not very clear what he's saying yet which is very common on this group, that people are not clear. And and add to that, you know, 500 sarcastic comments and clarity begins to diminish completely away and you've wasted, a, you know, 20 minutes or of your slow reader, an hour of your time listening to nonsense that is allowed to permeate everything that goes on on that group. So... Uh, he talks about eating a hamburger is an archist or anarchist. Neither is seizing the means of production. You could be an anarchist and advocate seizing the means of production, or you could be a non-anarchist, anarchist, an advocate for it. Uh, not really, but in. It's, he hasn't clarified anything. He, so let's put it in terms when they talk about seizing the means of production. Eating someone else's hamburger is a practice called stealing. If 51% of the people want to give their rights to the government to get the benefits of government, then what gives you the right to seize the government's, the corporation of the government stuff? Seizing the means of production. Now, ultimately, I got down to the point where I I explained a few more things 
to them about this right to seize. You only have the right to seize what is yours. And I said, I, I'm going to go out and seize my shovel and uh, and do some work. Uh, and that's what I went and did. Uh, some of the comments I made and statements I made were derided with the same sarcasm you see all the time. But I noticed that late in the afternoon, suddenly... Bing, like, bing, like, another guy likes, another guy likes what I said. And I thought, why did so many likes come in, you know, around four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon? All morning long, there was nothing but sarcasm coming out of people and uh, deriding and misunderstanding and, you know, kind of a troll mentality that permeated throughout the group. But around 4.30, 5 o'clock, late as 6 o'clock, I started seeing likes coming in of what I said. And I realized, those are all the people coming home from work. <laughs> it's all those people that are sitting at home <laughs> on their computers who may not be working <laughs> or not working very hard anyway. They are the trolls the actual workers understand what I was talking about. The whole uh, seizing, the word, again, a lot of times this may come back to the fact that people don't take the time to find out the meaning of the words. Seizing has to do with seizing a use of something. You know, somebody has a car, you get into it, and you seize the use of that car. Now, you can call it stealing. Maybe it's not stealing. Maybe you've entered into a contract to pay that person back. Say, for instance, somebody is bleeding to death on the side of the road, and you pick them up and you put them in this car, and you jump in the car, and the keys are in it, and you drive the car to the hospital, and you get that person to the hospital, and you save his life. And But the car, you didn't own it. The keys were just in it. You just... Kind of just took it. You seized the use of that car. Did you steal it? Well, you certainly weren't taking it for your own advantage. You were trying to save somebody else. A necessity makes the law. That's another maxim. You intended to return it. You only seized the use of it for a short period of time and for uh, to save somebody's life. And if you can bring it back to the original owner and say, you know, there's some blood in the back, but, you know, basically I used some gas, but I filled it up when I came back, and here's your car. And the guy could say, well, that, you saved the guy's life, that's good, that's okay, you used my car. Or he could say, well, wait a minute, you put miles on my car, I charge 25 uh, cents a mile for uh, use of my car. And it's okay, well, I owe you 20 bucks, you know. <laughs> But you see your car. It's not stealing. It was borrowing. And it was borrowing with intent not to take the use away from that individual, but to save somebody's life. That's all contractual relationships. No wet ink involved. But it's assumed. And I give lots of examples and show in history how this is the way it works. And it, but to seize somebody else's stuff for you... We'll be back. He says the kingdom and they will take the call.
have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God. Now, we, in the last show, we were talking about anarchists and anarchism and trying to clarify these words in your mind. Of course, there's going to be all kinds of other definitions of these words floating around in the minds of other people, but I wanted you to understand where I was coming from when I'm talking about it. And in my perception, no rulers. Abraham was an anarchist. I mean, he left Ur, which is the, the, the place where the Hammurabi Codes began, and uh, uh, it's, it's uh, the Babylon of ancient history, uh, and Nimrod, mighty ruler uh, you know, over the people, and how did he get to be a ruler? By being a mighty provider instead of God. Uh, he left Haran also. Haran was another city-state started by his own father. And he would not participate in the functions of any city-state. He wouldn't take the benefits of any city-state. He wouldn't take anything from anybody by force, not even a buckle, a shoelace uh, from anybody. Uh, But yet he also believed in providing for the needs of people through altars of clay and stone. And those of you who've read our materials understand what he was actually doing setting up these altars, not only for himself, but helping his neighbors set up altars as well. So much so that when a group of kings came through, rulers, archists, came through and started to conquer cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and a lot of other city-states and take gold and silver and take captives uh, and imprison them, enslave them into their society. Abraham was able to stop that overnight with his buddies where there was no ruler exercising authority one over the other. He had a household, but he was very clear. He didn't want fighting amongst his household or his household, fighting with the household of his nephew Lot. But many souls, it says, followed Abraham in Abraham's way, which was no centralized king or city-state. Now, he was, all this time, he was tithing to somebody, some king, who was called in the Bible, in the biblical text, the righteous king of Salem, which means the righteous king of peace, and we call him Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, same thing. Why was he king of peace, and why was he receiving a tithe? He was a government. He was an anarchist government. He wasn't a ruler over the people, but he was a benefactor to the people. And he was tithed to by Abraham, and others tithed to Abraham, and etc., etc. And they created a whole network of 
free offerings, sacrifices, to somebody who believed in not using force, but it didn't mean he didn't use a sword. It didn't mean that he wouldn't pull the sword out to protect the rights of others, to set his his nephew free and all the other people who were taken captive by a marauding thief. He would do that, but he wouldn't do it to seize the use or to steal them or to make them a slave or to... If you take what another man has made, what he has produced from him, you make him a slave in that instance because all his labor is tied up in the thing that he created. And if you take away a portion of what he created, you take away a portion of his labor that has been stored up in that thing. And Abraham wouldn't do that. He wouldn't even take a shoelace. He didn't make the shoelace. He saved those people, but he did that as a social obligation to protect his neighbor's rights. Because there was somebody coming into the community and seizing the means of production. That's why they were there. That's why they're taking away the captives. That's why they took away gold and they probably took away livestock and, you know, uh, whatever they were growing, took away food. They were seizing the means of production. And they were able to do this because they had this army of people that were all archists. None of them were anarchists. Now, they were seizing it. They could seize it, successfully seize it from other archists like the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. But they couldn't seize it from Abraham. As a matter of fact, Abraham put an end to their seizing. Abraham and and all the other people that he had helped build altars for. And all these other people were also anarchists. Necessarily, not necessarily so, but at least in their social welfare, they were anarchists. Because the key thing with his altars, his institutions that we call altars was that they only received free will offerings. Melchizedek only received free will offerings, the tithes of Abraham. And because of that, he came to Abraham's aid. He knew that the, the people would be hungry and they'd be thirsty, and he brought them food and provisions. And he had it to bring because people had been tithing to him. This is an anarchist government. Now, if we use the word anarchist today, most people think chaos, they think of people tipping over buses, people demonstrating and wanting to tear down the government. Anybody who wants to tear down the government is not an anarchist. By definition of the word, you know, the original definition of the word. Now, you can change that definition, you can add all kinds of other definitions, you can look up in dictionaries. You know, that's a fascinating study to look at dictionaries from. Uh, early days to uh, uh, you know a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, and you see the meaning of words change because men are ruled by words. The ultimate archist is what you think you know. <laughs> that that rules your heart and your mind. And Abraham was an anarchist. He wouldn't even rule over Lot, uh, his own younger nephew. 
he he wouldn't rule over even a shoelace. Moses was an anarchist too, and so was Jesus Christ, who said, "You are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other." You know, they they call themselves benefactors, but they exercise authority. It is not to be that way with you. He's saying you're to be anarchists, not ruling over each other, not tearing down other governments either. If somebody owes Caesar, they should pay Caesar. They shouldn't say, ah, show me the wedding contract. Did you take the benefit? Did you go to public school? Did you take care of your parents or did the state take care of your parents? Because if the state took care of your parents, then your neighbor took care of your parents. And you failed one of the commandments to honor your father and your mother, to take care of your father and mother. You you failed to do that. state did that. So all the rights of inheritance now go to the state because the state was the the one who took care of your parents, not you. You know, people cripple themselves by trying to get out of the system so they can neither take care of their parents nor themselves. They need to repent of that. If you want to get out of the system, start doing the reverse of it. Be a reactionary. Start doing the reverse of what the system does. Take back your responsibilities. Pay your tally of bricks. But then take care of your parents. Take care of your children. Help take care of your neighbor's children. Start uh, Help your neighbor homeschool. Start teaching people home health. Get healthy yourself. You know, improve your own situation so that you can be helpful to others. Don't don't cut your throat so that you 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 know that you can't even take care of yourself and have to rely on others and become a burden to others. We're to be lifting the burden off of people, not putting it on them. So anyway, we said we would take calls. I don't know if I should give out the number. Uh, we've given out the number uh, on the local network, and uh, somebody's moderating the board. Uh, so you, what you do is you call the number and uh, and uh, raise your hand by pushing six, I guess it is. Uh, star six. Star six. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, We'll give you a chance to call in if you have something, and if nobody calls in by the mid uh, uh, point in the show, we'll give out the number right after the break, and uh, or maybe we'll give it out right before the break, and uh, and you can call in in the, in the second half of this show, and we'll see how this works. Uh, anyway, so we started talking about anarchism and. And the reason why is we're talking anarchism is one form of government, and uh, the Bible is mostly about government. Mentions religion five times, mentions government about seven hundred times. It certainly is talking about stories of conflict between governments and man. I mean, the first governments that exercised authority were Cain, city-state, Nimrod, uh, Lamech, uh, and and that's where people, uh, the kingdom of heaven is from generation to generation, and so is bondage. 
But God wants you to be free souls under his government, governed by him in your heart and your mind. And that would look a certain way. You would be as concerned about the rights of others as you would be about your own rights. And therefore, you would not be an anarchist tipping over buses. You would not be an anarchist trying to take away the right of others to form a government, even an anarchist-type government. You simply would be working diligently, day by day, to provide for yourself and other neighbors who want to become independent of governments that exercise authority one over the other. Not independent of all government, just the governments that exercise authority one over the other. Because Christ instituted a government. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from the uh, from the Pharisees, and I'm going to appoint it to men who will bear fruit. And he called those men his little flock that he said he would appoint the kingdom to. And then we see him, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father has appointed unto me. That kingdom became known as the church. Uh, what it did was called the way. They eventually, the followers of that way began to be called Christians first in Antioch. But now, a lot of people are called Christians that are not Christians. They're not actually following the ways of Christ. They're following the ways of Herod, the ways of the Pharisees, the ways of Nimrod, they, the ways of the other governments that call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. And yet they still call themselves Christians, yet Christ said not to be that way. So they're doing the exact opposite of what Christ said, yet they call themselves followers of Christ, which is the ultimate hypocrisy. And it's no wonder that Jesus said, many will say they're coming in my name, but I know them not. They'll say they're doing things in my name, but they're actually workers of iniquity because through their covetous practices, they will become merchandise, surety for debt. And their children will become surety for that debt. And they will again return to the bondage of Egypt. And it will be worse for them than it was originally. They'll all be entangled again in the elements of bondage. And so now you see these archists realizing that they're in bondage, realizing or the feeling the pains of that bondage. Most of them don't admit they're in bondage. They say, oh, well, show me the wedding contract, or, you know, or no one has a right to rule over another. But that's what nonsense. Certainly people have a right to rule over another. You you come into my house, you eat at my table, you sleep in the bed that I made, under the roof that I constructed. You are subject to my will in this domain. Now, I will let you leave. But if you sit around and eat my food and drink my wine and and don't do what you should be doing, don't carry your weight, you can become obligated to me. Unless I freely give you these things, I can say, look, if you're going to eat here for the next week or two, uh, you're going to owe me a week's worth of labor. And you say, okay, I'll I'll do that. No signing a contract or anything. I expect you to carry out these jobs for a week once you get on your feet. 
and then you get on your feet and you say, well, I don't have to. You can't rule over me. Then you're stealing all the food that you've already consumed. You've already ate. I don't have that food anymore. You have it in your belly, and now you're using the energy that it has given you to go do something other than what you agreed to do. When the Israelites went into Egypt, they agreed that if you feed us, we will give you one-fifth of our labor every year, 20%. And 400 years later, the children of Israel were still in bondage in Egypt. Now, the terms had gotten worse through very crafty means. And, then of course, you know, originally Social Security, what was it, 1.3% or 1.5%, something like that? Now it's 14%. Under Tsarist Russia, the worst the peasants had to pay was 10%. You're paying more than that just in Social Security. And then through very clever means, you're also paying taxes on gas, you're paying taxes on property, you're paying taxes on sales tax, and all that increases the cost of goods and services. So you're paying more for all those things, and now... You know, it, it normally it would figure the calculations are that if you got up to 33% of what you're paying in taxes, that society is doomed. We've gone beyond that, and we are rapidly going farther and farther beyond that, and there's until there's no return. But you should pay those taxes. I'm not saying don't pay taxes. I'm saying you have to strive and seek a form of government, a form of interaction with one another, a way in which you govern yourself that makes you independent of those systems that exercises authority one over the other. You don't want more public school. You want less public school in your family. You want less uh, need for public aid, less need for uh, health insurance. You know, I was just talking to somebody last night, going to put in extra doors in their house uh, where there was no door. And they wanted to put a door that closes on, on this one room. And uh, I, they were going to put a, what do you call a 3-0 door? Not, not a 3-0 door, a 30-inch door. And I said, you ought to put a 3-0 door. And they, they thought, like, why? I said, because wheelchair access. You may may have somebody staying with you someday that needs to get in and out of that room. And uh, I knew all the other doors in his house were like 2-6 or 2-8 doors. And that would be the only bedroom, private bedroom, that had a 3-0 door. And he said he thought, that makes a lot of sense. I thought it was because he was thinking about his father. He said, no, he was thinking about himself. He says, time passes and suddenly he may need that. <laughs> well, you know, it's just... Uh, it it shows that they're thinking about taking care of at least themselves, if not others. And that's what you have to do. That's kingdom thinking, thinking about how to care for others, how to prepare your life so that you can care for others. You're still working daily, paying his taxes daily uh, in a system that he does not want to be dependent upon. So that's very important. If you're going to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because the kingdom of God 
is for the living right now. It's right here on earth. Abraham was, you know, part of that kingdom. In Daniel, he says the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Uh, Noah was spared because he was righteous in what? His generations. In other words, he had not sold out to the city-states in order to obtain benefits, like Polybius says, like Plutarch says, like hundreds of philosophers have said, the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits, are that's the destroyers of liberty. To become a benefit for your family, for society in general, is the road to liberty. To gather together in free assemblies to help take care of one another, to cast your bread upon the waters, is the path to freedom and liberty. Whining and complaining and sarcastic remarks is a waste of time and energy. It is foolishness. It is draining the life that you have. You know, every... You know, you can think of this. Every beat of your heart takes you one beat closer to your own demise and death. So make good use of every heartbeat you have. Sarcasm and putting other people down and ridicule is not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is demonically wasting your heartbeats your breath. It is to no avail. You will not be free. You will be nothing but arrogant and self-serving. Now, anarchists can be very self-serving. They don't want to rule over anybody else, but actually all these sarcastic people, they do want to rule over everybody else. They're not listening. They're not giving people... Uh, free chance to speak. They're putting people down and ridiculing them. Uh, I should uh, probably in the second half we'll we'll take a look at sarcasm and what some people say about sarcasm. And if you got some great quotes on sarcasm, uh, let's add them to the page uh, because it's very interesting <laughs> that uh, such uh, uh, such a pastime of trolls on places like the Internet, uh, of this sarcastic, uh, you know, not, you, people people trust, uh, learn to trust one another because, you know, friends can actually be sarcastic and tease each other. And teasing is actually a form of, of uh, you know, uh, it, it's a way of developing a relationship with people teasing and and everybody laughs together and that sort of thing. But the sarcasm that is putting people down uh, uh, is is just ridiculous. If somebody has an opinion and you want to express that opinion uh, in a group, the worst thing to have is somebody making sarcastic, uh, demeaning uh, remarks, ad hominems, because you're not discussing the thing at all. You're avoiding discussion. Uh, like Samuel Butler said, uh, neither irony or sarcasm is an argument. 
it's it's not dealing with what has been presented. It shows an absolute callous disregard for others. Thomas Carlyle said, sarcasm, I, I now see to be, in general, the language of the devil, for which reason I have long since as good as renounced it. Sarcasm is uh, the use of irony to mock and convey contempt. And that's all I see coming out of this one group is a great deal of mocking and conveying. Somebody said, oh, this group has changed my mind four times. Uh, referring to the fact that he thought the group was good because it had changed his mind. Well, changed it to what? <laughs> About what? <laughs> the fact that something has changed your mind doesn't make it a good thing. It could be a very bad thing. Uh, very interesting how he's defending the group. We should be defending righteousness. And, and there's probably good people on the group, and I've said it several times. I mean, you've got six, 7,000 people. But it's very clear that a certain number of people have become absolutely disgusted with the pervasive troll spirit that is constantly putting other people down. It's not the way to go. It's not constructive. It's not wise. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a waste of time. Yet, I've wasted my time with a lot of people in hopes that they would see the truth. And I may post on that group and I've looked at some of the other groups, and we have different people in the network that are, I see them popping up on these different groups. And what they do is they share some of the stuff that we've written about showing. I mean, if you mention church, what do people think? I understand that that has a bad taste in the mouth of most people because they look at all the hypocrites going to church, down there in the church that say they're following Jesus and are absolutely doing the opposite of what Jesus said to do. They say they love one another, yet they send men to their neighbor's house to force their neighbor to provide for their education, for the children's education, for their welfare, for their for their aging parents, for the health care of society. And they call themselves a Christian. They send these armed men to collect from their neighbor. A free society, all taxes are voluntary, which is what a tithe is. It's a voluntary contribution to the minister of your choice. Every day you give is voting day because every offering is a votive offering. That's the people seeking the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, your parents have already brought you back into the bondage of Egypt. And people are always, you know, I added a, a new page this last week, a parental contract. And uh, it's it's still in the works. But uh, it talks a great deal about the contract that your parents can sign with wet ink <laughs> that puts their children into bondage. And the Bible is very clear on this. Through covetous practices, you will curse your children. Curse is usually almost always involved with a debt. You made your children a surety for debt. You were a surety for debt. And you've done this through covetous practices. 
and there is some wet ink evidence of that. But anyway, uh, one of the things is I, I said we, we will be taking callers, and uh, there is a number that you can call. And if I can find it here really quick, or maybe uh, uh, if we get back. Call in number, if you got a pen and paper, because it's a big long number, is 641-715-3670. I'll give that one more time, but you also will need a code to get in, 5738-12. So the number is 641 715 3670 and the code number is 573812 and when you have a question you have to push star 6 and uh, and somebody will connect you in with your question anyway we'll give that a shot uh, for anybody who has questions and uh, it'll probably be the same number next week, and so you can think all week about another question. So anyway, uh, we're back, uh, and we're going to be talking about Abraham, who is an early archist, <laughs> who chose to be an anarchist. You see, Abraham was heir to the throne, and uh, he gave that up, and it passed on to his brother, Dahor. And he had another brother named Haran who had died. Uh, and actually, it appears in the translation, and we talk about it in the book, uh, Thy Kingdom Comes, it appears that uh, his brother may have been put to death, probably by the legal system of Ur. And you could be put to death for all kinds of crimes and uh, uh, that don't really seem like crimes. But uh, that's what happens when you, when they, when your government gets to take and take and take and take. Eventually, it'll make a law that it can take your life. You know, it's taking all your stuff. It can now take your life. And of course, if you take enough stuff, a lot of times people die. They, they work themselves to death trying to survive. And uh, but you see, this this beast that we create goes about and devours who he wills. And we create it by being willing and accepting the idea that it's okay to take a bite out of one another. All these sarcastic remarks that you see coming out of people on these uh, uh, different uh, uh, Facebook groups is really taking a bite out of people emotionally. You know, it, it's attacking people. It's ad hominem attacking the individual rather than rationally discussing the issues. You know, we've seen some groups that rationally discuss the issues that are before them. And they'll say one thing and we'll say, well, here's another way to look at it. And then they actually agree. And yet what they're agreeing to is the opposite of what they said. It's because words have meanings. 
And once you, you put on, you know, seize the means of production, you know, American Revolution, revolution supposedly, it wasn't Americans who were revolting. It was the king who was revolting, and the Americans said, you have to stop this unwarranted usurpation. You're breaking the contract. You're violating the original natural law agreement that we could be free men in America if we held land in a freehold title. And so Americans were working diligently and trying to get others to work diligently to have a freehold title in land and not be taxed. You wouldn't know that from your modern study of history because all that's been deleted from the history books. They make vague references. I mean, James Trussell's March of Democracy, uh, uh, you know, history of uh, the U.S. Uh, in America, talks about the average farmer living on his land in fee simple, untaxed by all the world, had become a tough nut for any imperial power to crack. Well, it's cracked by an imperial power called the United States. It is an imperial power. And, and now people will have knee-jerk reaction and, and want to come back with, no, it's a democracy. Well, actually, originally it was a republic. But people don't even know the difference between a pure republic and an indirect democracy. Because a republic is not just an indirect democracy. They say, well, we're... Uh, you know, a democratic republic. You know, well, you, now, you're, you're, now you're talking about an anarchist communist. <laughs> you know, it just democracy is a common purse of rights where 51% of the people can take away the rights of the other 49. You say, well, it has a constitution. Well, the constitution is supposed to protect your rights. Well, it gives you a right, too. I mean, it recognizes the right, your right to contract. And that's why the most common Latin maxim you find in writings uh, of the United Nations is Pacta Servanda Sunt. Agreements must be kept. And that's why they have you sign so many things. Is that you're signing, when you sign on to these institutions created by the legislature, you sign on all the, to the rules of that institution. That's why Abraham and Moses created institutions we call altars that were free assemblies because you didn't become a member. You participated in a free assembly with free will offerings where you completely gave up your offering to men that you trusted. When you stopped trusting them, you stopped giving to them. So anyway, we're talking about Abraham, and we have a page that uh, is called Abraham and Preparing You, and it, a lot of it contains material that was in the book, or is in the book, uh, Thy Kingdom Comes, which of course is from Thy Kingdom Come When I Will Be Done. Abraham had uh, left Ur, which was a city-state, which may have taken the life of his own brother named Haran. And also he left Haran, which was the city-state created by his father. And he got out of the land of his family's nativity because it, all city-states are fundamentally flawed because they are a compilation of the rights of the people. 
it's a pooling of rights, a common purse of rights, and that runs towards evil. He also avoided other city-states like Sodom and Gomorrah. What was he doing, and why was he able to defeat whole armies that had just conquered these these state governments, these city-states, when he was neither a king or a ruler himself? He didn't want to rule over people. He made deals like, you go take the best of the land to the, this direction or that, whichever you want, just so that we don't fight him. He was a man of peace. He was tithing to somebody called the righteous king of peace. Somebody who actually physically could show up with food and wine, probably some cheese, you know. And he was tithing to this righteous king of peace through this whole time. Uh, so, anyway, this whole idea of Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's what it says in Romans uh, 4.3. As a man became civilized in those days, the creation of a city-state, he entered into a social contract that made use of at least two legal concepts or structures these institutions. We're supposed to teach the kingdom of God to every creature. The word creature there is the same word for institution. That's right. To everything that we institute, every agreement we make, every every business agreement we make, like that plumber back then I was talking about had all these people working for him. So say he had nine guys working for him, and he was the tenth guy. Are there ten people involved in his working arrangement? No, there's millions of people involved in his working arrangements. Why? Because he went and got an employer identification number. He was a federal employer. All the people that he hired had federal employee identification numbers. And when they hired on to him, they didn't just have to do what he said. They had to do what the government said in relationship to the federal employer, federal employee identification numbers. Because they had all entered into agreements with a third party called the state. He wasn't a private employer. He was an employer of the state. 10, 20, 30% of everything those people earned, he had to make sure that money or the representative value, which we see in the form of money, goes to the state. So there's there wasn't ten people involved in this agreement, but lots of people. And a majorly giant institution that used these two concepts of uh, trust and corporation. The state, the United States federal government is a corporation. There's a lot of debate about that. The fact is it states it in the codes that it's a corporation. Uh, if you just read the Constitution, it reads like bylaws of a corporation. Uh, their concern of a Bill of Rights was for the people who entered into the corporation, which had to do – because all these rights already existed for the local people 
in America in the individual states. But when you became a federal employee, such as a senator or a congressman or a president, you were now entering in a jurisdiction that was outside of the states called the, you know, we eventually called it Washington, D.C., but it was this United States. That's jurisdiction extended to federal property, such as Fort Sumner was federal property, and uh, federal gold, which would be in the different um Banks might be in state banks, private banks, but it belonged to the federal government. To seize that gold would be to seize a use. And since gold is something that you could invest, it would be the means of production. And why am I mentioning these two items for Sumner and the, and the seizing of the gold? These are things that came up in the war between the states. Clark's summary of U.S. American law says that that the states were as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada, even after the implementation of the Constitution of the United States. They were separate countries. The United States government was a separate government outside the states eventually, on separate land, which we call Washington, D.C. today. It used to actually be, that land used to be called Rome. Did you know that? It was in a state that was given, you know, actually sessioned from the state of Maryland to the United States federal government for the purposes of building Washington, D.C. The estate was named Rome. <laughs> That's just, you know, you can check that out in uh, Dr. Sassi's book, Rulers of Evil. And... Uh, and he, you know, there's there's a deed you can go that's in archives and it's it can be looked up. But anyway, the point is, is it's a separate entity. The people were over here state citizens, and the federal government. You weren't a federal citizen; you were a citizen of the individual states, and the individual states were separate governments. It's foreign to each. Clark's summary of U.S. American law states very clearly that the states were as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada even after the implementation of the Constitution of the United States. That's not the case anymore. But that was the case at that time. But through contracts, things have changed. Through revenue sharing, things have changed. You know, such as the creation of the Federal Birth Registration Area and the creation of the 14th Amendment, uh, which allows for citizenship in the United States government. Uh, the average individual didn't get a passport from the federal government. That was for senators and congressmen and ambassadors and other employees of the federal government. You know, and there are people going around saying, oh, we don't owe income tax. The only one who owns income tax is federal employees, yet they have a federal employee identification number. And their parents had a federal employee identification number. And their parents' parents had a federal employee identification number. So all those people are federal employees. And for at least 20% of the day, or, you know, my dad used to say that when I asked him who he worked for, he says, until July 1st, I work for the government. 
because he was in a 50% income tax bracket. So he knew he was working for the government. Now, he wasn't working, you know, for a prudential insurance company, or uh, he was a, an attorney, uh, so he worked for a lot of different companies, but uh, he knew he was working for the government. And whatever he earned was going to go to the government. That's slavery. But it's a form of slavery called Corvi, and we go into that and explain. I won't go into all that now. Abraham left all that. You had that in Ur. You had that in Haran. You had that in Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are all city-states. And the government was supported by the offerings of the people, and the offerings of the people were compelled by statute. And that statute was either created by somebody like the Congress or the Sanhedrin or by a king in his entourage. And he decided to take and take and take and take and take. The same as the first taxes in what we'll call imposed taxes, but it's actually all taxes are imposed, in Israel were collected by King Saul who forced an offering to help support the military because he he was worried about the Philistines coming. Until then, all the offerings were free will offerings, which we call tithes. And we call them tithes because they came from congregations of ten to a network of ministers in a free society where all the taxes were voluntary. You taxed yourself. That's called a tithe. You decide what you're going to give and to whom you're going to give it. And when you give it, it's a votive offering. You're empowering that individual with this money alone, not with your right to choose, but with your right to choose over this money, this sheet, this whatever it is that you give. I'm not going to choose what you're going to do with this sheep. You choose what you're going to do with this sheep or this oil or this whatever it was that you offered. Or this gold. You give them the power to choose what to do with it. That requires responsibility on your part. And this is what Abraham was setting up. His altars were living altars. Living stones. Just like we see in the New Testament. Lively stones. They were men. They looked out amongst themselves. And they picked men they trusted. And they entrusted them with what they produce the means of production and if they did well with it they gave to them again if they did not do well with it they gave to somebody else that's a form of government those stones were a form of government those altars were an institution of Abraham and Moses did the same and they had a tribe that as generally speaking most of the original Levite ministers were of that tribe because most of the people who came out were called out by Moses, came out of this camp, this golden calf camp. The golden calf was simply a central bank. And we explain that in great detail. We show you, take you right through the Hebrew, show you that the golden calf was a central bank. It was a way in which to incorporate in a common purse the wealth of the people. And Abraham and Moses were showing you, no, that's not the way. The wealth goes in your pocket. And only what you choose to give and freely give and give entirely, 
you give to these ministers of the state, this corporate state. The Levites were a corporation. A corporation is two or more people gathered together as if they were one person under a pre-existing authority. And the Levites are mine, saith God. They owned all things in common. They had no personal inheritance, except in a legal sense, like you. You have no personal inheritance. You legally inherit property. Legal title doesn't include the ownership. So you don't even inher- you inherit nothing when you inherit, except for the right to pay the taxes on a piece of property. Because you don't own anything. You have a legal title to. This is why all these things start coming together and fitting together. Go back to the book Covenants of the Gods. Legal title. Legal title doesn't include the beneficial interest. Not by definition. It doesn't include the beneficial interest. What is the beneficial interest? The right to use the property. It doesn't include the use. You have to seize the use if you want to use it. No, because the use you have with your legal title is a granted use, which they can take away if you don't pay the tax. You can owe a couple thousand dollars worth of tax. They take the whole property away because you don't own it. You don't even know what ownership means. You own the right to pay the tax. As long as you pay the tax, they let you use the property. You have not been righteous in your generations. You inherit nothing but debt. And you inherit that from generation to generation. Your children will inherit that too. Except this system is called the unrighteous mammon. Mammon means trust. That's what it means, entrusted wealth. That's that, that's the Aramaic word, means entrusted wealth. doesn't mean money necessarily. It means entrusted wealth. So that idea of trust in corporations is found in every government. But in the government, government of God, we are supposed to return every man to his family and to his possessions. Why to his family? So that his possessions may pass down from generation to generation. The only thing that you're passing down to the next generation now is debt. Because through covetous practices, you've become a surety for debt. Your children are a surety for debt. And you're back entangled again in the elements of the world, the constitutional orders and systems of government, through contract, through agreements that your parents have signed and you have signed with wet ink. And you want to make that all go away by waving your hand or saying something ridiculously trite like, I don't have any agreement with them. Lots of luck with that. The Bible tells you not only the nature of the problem, your covetous practices, but how to be free again which is the antithesis of covetous practices. It's called charitable practices. You have to care about your neighbor's rights as much as you... I don't know. I'm I'm glad nobody's called in and say, well, how do I get free? <laughs> because that's the wrong question. The right question, at least, minimum, how can I help my children become free? That would be better. But how can I help the rest of society become free to seek that freedom? You have to seek liberty 
under God for others as much as you want to seek it for yourself. If you put yourself first, you can figure you will be last to be free. Because we know the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You have to care about others. If you care about others, you will automatically want to gather together with others. You will want to give to people who are preaching the gospel of the kingdom and teaching others what that looks like and what that means. You will want to do that. If you actually love your neighbor, you will want to find a way to help your neighbor understand the law, the perfect law of liberty. So this is the process, this idea of corporation and trust. Both systems have a sense of trust. Both systems have to have... You know, why were the Levites belonging to God and considered a body that owned all things in common? Yet, you know, Levites had... You know, a Levite would have a house, he would have sheep, he would have... And he would run them on the lands in common. And they did all that stuff on a regular basis. But... Because they were the corporation. They were the body of God. Same as the church's body of Christ. So we'll have to talk about this at another time. have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.